Take also your bulletin insert, which has our passage of Scripture printed upon it from 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll read together in unison this passage, verses 1 through 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, that's printed for you on your bulletin insert, and we'll read aloud together. Let's read God's word. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another, without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. What is the difference between saints and sinners? You ever thought about that? Most people, I imagine, would think sinners are those people who want autonomy, independence, unrestrained pleasure, happiness, fulfillment, right here in the here and now, and that they're willing to have those things even in exchange for suffering, enslavement, and grief for all eternity. And then on the other hand, most people think saints opt for discipline, moral restraint, the shunning of all of those pleasures and passions, bondage to a strict master, and let's face it, a fairly boring life in exchange, on the other hand, for freedom and uninhibited passions and pure bliss in the life of heaven. But there's a problem because the Bible doesn't see it that way. And Peter, in our passage today, doesn't see it that way. That's not how it works. Peter tells us that both Christians and non-Christians suffer. Peter tells us that both are the servant of a master. Both are on a quest to find pleasure and satisfaction. 
security, significance. So what's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? It's been said that 25 years ago in the prevailing American culture, the question that haunted the average person was this, am I good? Am I good? Sure, people uh, were not perfect. They had their indiscretions and their guilty pleasures. But at the bottom, people would go to bed at night and say to themselves, you know what? Fundamentally, I'm a good person. And they'd rest in peace knowing that. And then along would come a Christian and say, well, you know, the standard is not just to sort of be a good person, but actually it's perfection. God demands perfection. That's the standard. And some people would tremble at that thought, realize that perfection was the standard and they couldn't be perfect, and they would often become Christians because they knew that they need Jesus who lives the life and who dies the death that we all should have. But these days... These days, the question that perplexes us, maybe even subconsciously, but keeps us up some nights, is not so much, am I good? But actually, the question is, am I free? Am I free? Many, many people see Christianity, don't they, as a straitjacket. Hmm? It means that their, their freedom is threatened fundamentally. Because Christianity, after all, makes people conform to a moral standard that's outside of themselves and stop pursuing their authentic, true selves. So religion spoils the fun. It curtails our freedom. It inhibits self-discovery. And so it's viewed as something that enslaves. Interestingly, Peter's 2,000-year-old sermon, or rather letter here that we've read this morning, actually shows us that both Christianity, both Christians rather, and non-Christians suffer and are in servitude. Christians and non-Christians both suffer and are in servitude. How exactly is that the case? Peter wants us to see that if we're not bowing down to and worshiping and serving the Lord Jesus... That doesn't mean that we don't have a God that we're serving, bowing down to, and worshiping. We will worship. We'll just worship a lesser God, a petty God, a small thing of a God. Verse 3, he tells us that we'll give ourselves to ultimately over to debauchery and sensuality, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and all manner of, and here's the important word in our passage today, and all manner of what? Idolatry idolatry. If God's not your God, something else is going to be your God. You will have an idol. And why is that? It's because you and I were made as worshipers. We can't help it. We're a servant. We're a slave. The question is, to whom? You might be thinking to yourself, really? Are you telling me, preacher, that my atheist friend, who believes there's no such thing as a God anywhere, is actually a worshiper of a God, that he serves and he's a religious person through and through? Yes, that's what I'm saying, essentially. I have an old friend who uh, had wisdom beyond his years, and this was 10 years ago. He was quite the wise 20-year-old, but he said, your passion, your passion 
is whatever you think about when there's nothing else to think about. Your passions, whatever you think about when there's nothing else to think about. And it wasn't just him, but uh, half a century ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, William Temple, said that your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is whatever you do with your solitude. Again, when there's nothing else to do or to think about. So what's your passion? What's your religion? Are you mastered by the God of the universe, by our Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you mastered by, I don't know, power and influence, by money and stuff that you can buy with your money, by family and traditions, by comfort, by independence, by sex? It's right there in our passage. The important thing to realize is that these things are not bad in of themselves. They are God's good gifts. The problem is that we're expecting ultimate fulfillment from these things, and they're not designed to give it to us. We organize our lives around these things that we're passionate about, but we quickly realize, don't we, that their pleasures don't last. We think about them all the time, and we want to have more and more of them, and we scheme about how we're going to have more and more of these things. And so like a drug addiction almost, the more that we have, the more that we want, and we've got to have it in higher quantity and better quality, or else we just don't feel normal anymore. So these gods dominate us. What a feeling of insecurity that you're left with when you realize that your passions, your religion, your God might not actually be worth forming your whole life around in the first place. You're struggling to find who you really are and you've changed your whole life to discover yourself, to find the true you, but the you that you find in pursuit of all of these pleasures and passions disgusts you. It's not the you that you set out to find. Sometimes our false gods, these true yous, if you will, they start out seeming legitimate. Think about the American dream as the chief example. What's more legitimate than the American dream, right? I want to get an education. I want to get a fulfilling job, something that is worth getting up for in the morning. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to find and marry my soulmate. I'm going to have 2.5 or so well-adjusted, well-behaved kids and a smart dog who's cute and serves the purpose of a watchdog. I'm going to have a nice house and a nice picket fence um, and perhaps most importantly, an, an early and a carefree retirement. It's the American dream. What's so wrong with that? But the question is, what if that whole dream becomes your overarching passion, your religion, if you will, and what happens when it doesn't work out the way that you dreamed or the way that all of America collectively dreams? What happens when it falls to, to bits right before you? Well, if it's your religion and your passion and you've got to have it, then you despair and you come undone. And then what? Well, then your false gods start to look more and more like the false gods in Peter's list, don't they? You give up on the grandiose American dream and you settle for puny small, uh, small false gods. Look at the list. Debauchery, drunkenness, binge drinking parties, lust, all kinds of sexual adventures. 
the bigger, the more legitimate false gods fail you and you go for the quick fix. And then suddenly your life begins to look to you and to everybody else radically selfish. You're bent in on yourself and you realize this whole time I've been trying to discover myself, I want to be free. You discover yourself and you're miserable. You're enslaved to yourself. You're your own God. And it's pathetic and miserable. If that's not suffering, I don't know what suffering is. But the question is, and this is the one that Peter is intent on answering for us, what happens when Jesus makes himself Savior, but especially in this instance, Lord of your life? Well, first of all, it means that you've got a master, right? There's no more days of living for yourself and your service to your petty gods are over. But the catch is that your days of suffering and servitude are not over. Yet, in this suffering and this servitude, Peter shows us we find great satisfaction. We find true security. And we find, finally, fulfilling, meaningful service. If anyone felt the deep dissatisfaction of having puny, petty, pathetic, false gods, it was that great church father, Augustine. He tells a story in his confessions that when he was a kid, he and his cronies, that's a fancy word for friends, would go and just for the heck of it, would rob their, neighbor, their neighbor's apple orchard, steal apples. And he reflects for pages on this experience. He's a Christian now and he's looking back as a kid and he thinks, what in the world was I doing and why did I do that? You know the answer he finally comes to? He wasn't hungry. He wasn't particularly bored. There are plenty of things that those kids could have done. They discovered, he discovered that they were stealing those apples simply for the thrill, the fleeting, passing thrill of doing something wrong and getting away with it. And then when he was a young man, he pursued his true authentic self. He reveled in his freedom and he did the sorts of things Peter mentions here. Lots of women, lots of alcohol. And then even when he was a little bit older, he became a careerist. The American dream, if you, if you will, in ancient North Africa. And he was obsessed with being a professional intellectual, having everyone esteem him because of his brain. And then what happened to him was so marvelous. His mother, Monica, who had been praying for him for years and years and years, her prayers were finally answered. And he came under the influence of a man named Ambrose, St. Ambrose. And the more Augustine followed around Ambrose, the more he hated it because it became clear that Ambrose was satisfied and Augustine wasn't. Then one evening, famous conversion story of Augustine, he was walking in a garden and walking around, he almost could faintly hear children somewhere in the distance and they were singing over and over again, Take up and read. Take up and read. And he's thinking, what does this mean? And he looks down at his side and, oh, he's carrying a Bible around. So he takes up and reads. He just randomly opens it. His finger falls on Romans chapter 14, or sorry, 13, verse 14. And he reads it. He read it aloud because nobody read to themselves quietly back in those days. He said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh 
to gratify its desires. And Augustine just came unraveled right there. He realized that he was enslaved to pathetic false gods, and he served them diligently, but he always came up empty. And he realized that Ambrose had put on the Lord Jesus Christ and served him. Ambrose wasn't free. Ambrose was enslaved, but he was enslaved to Jesus. And that meant that his passions in the service of Jesus were actually allowed to roam free and find all of their fulfillment. And so Augustine realized what Peter says in verse 3 of our passage, that he had spent quite enough of his life living this empty, pathetic existence in the service of false gods. And so he wrote on the first page of that famous book, his Confessions, this marvelous passage. He says, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless, restless, until they find their rest in you. Augustine knew what he was talking about. Satisfaction, deep satisfaction. But Peter tells us also that if you worship Jesus instead of false petty gods, your insecurity evaporates. You stop serving gods that have proven themselves unworthy of your worship, and you start serving Jesus, who, verse 1, suffered and died for you. And verse 7, changed the entire course of human history with his resurrection and his ascension to the throne of God so that the end of all things is near. In other words, there's nothing left to happen between you and paradise except for Jesus coming back. What deep security. In Jesus, you find your true self, and your true self keeps getting truer and truer and truer for all of eternity. In fact, satisfaction is really too weak of a word to describe this sort of thing. Unlike serving other gods, serving Jesus actually, though, makes you less concerned about finding your true self. Instead, you start actually being your true self. You start living for others the way that Jesus lived and, in fact, still lives for you. A true, true self in Jesus, Peter says in verse 8, is a self that, did you notice, loves others deeply. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. How's that, by the way, for being like Jesus? Someone sins against you, you love them. That's hard. Because you know what you're doing? You're absorbing all of the consequences of the sin that that person committed against you. And you're loving them in turn. How like Jesus is that? What else? Verse 9, you show others hospitality. In the Bible, this doesn't mean having church people over for lunch afterwards. Um, it means welcoming strangers. And quite often that means, most of the time, it means having non-Christians in your home. Befriending them. Opening your life to them. And that's hard. And that's why Peter says, you're going to be tempted to grumble, but do it without grumbling. Again, now we see why Jesus is our great example, don't we? Was there ever a welcomer of strangers like the Lord Jesus? And there's more. Verse, verse 4. Peter expects that if you're a Christian, you'll be close enough to non-Christians, hospitable enough to them, if you like, 
that they'll invite you along when they go off to serve at their little temples of their false gods. I'm not talking about stone and wood, but these gods that Peter lists, drunkenness, etc. And what will you do? Peter says, you'll refrain. And what will they do? They'll make fun of you. And that's hard. We see how the Lord Jesus, of course, has come to us even while we were reviling him. We judged him to be a pathetic, weak killjoy, and he died for our sins. You see what's happening here? To worship and serve Jesus instead of petty gods means that we'll suffer. Hmm? We'll suffer because covering over people's sins is hard. It hurts because welcoming strangers into our lives who are different than us, who see maybe the whole world differently than us, is hard. Because being made fun of because you don't worship false gods is hard. Again, let me repeat the challenge here so you see it clearly. Peter says, worship Jesus alone. Be friends with sinners. Don't sin. Be ready to be made fun of. Don't take it personally. And don't be judgmental or holier than thou. But keep loving them because Jesus is coming back to judge the quick and the dead. Only, only someone who is loved like this by Jesus has the power to love people who sin against them like this. Do you see that? In a few minutes, we're going to come to the table and celebrate communion. And we're going to be reminded of Jesus' own radically hospitable love for us, his welcoming of us strangers. We're going to see that he covers over with his death and with his life a multitude of sins. Can you imagine a multitude of sins. And we're going to see that his love endures and even overcomes ridicule. Remember what he says on the cross there? People are mocking him and jeering him. Remember what he says? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Have you ever experienced this wild hard, difficult love that the Lord Jesus has for you? Has it made you quit worshiping and serving these pathetic, petty, counterfeit gods in your life? Have you found your true self in the Lord Jesus Christ by loving and serving the true God in Jesus, even if it's hard? What a welcome we have from a loving Savior. A welcome to find ourselves slaves not to sin and patheticness anymore, but to righteousness and glory. He welcomes you with open arms, the welcomer of welcomers, the great captain of hospitality. Let's come to him together. Let's receive his grace. Let's be renewed and let's worship him alone. He is not only worthy of it, but it's so much better for us. Amen? Amen. Well, let's join our hearts together in prayer.